Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast where two friends stopped arguing about movies and started working through them together. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. As we continue filling in gaps in our movie-watching history, we're watching a movie I've never seen from one of the greatest all-time filmmakers, Martin Scorsese and his 1999 frantic drama Bringing Out the Dead. Now, we're cheating a little bit on our concept since this is a movie Ryan has seen, but for the life of him, he can't remember anything about it. As huge fans of Scorsese, we were embarrassed to have any of his films still hanging out on our watch list. And with his newest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, coming out this fall, we jumped at the chance to prepare by watching one of his lesser-known films. For a movie that revolves around people who fall through the cracks of society, it might be fitting that Bringing Out the Dead became one of Scorsese's forgotten movies. It was a box office flop, bringing in only $16 million on a $55 million budget. Critics were lukewarm, though the reviews were better than the audience reception. Bring Out the Dead also has the dubious honor of being the only Scorsese movie of the 90s not to get an Oscar nomination. And nearly 25 years later, Bringing Out the Dead still hasn't seemed to find any real audience. But does that just mean that so many people are just plain wrong and missing out on a classic? Or did Marty get a little too arty for his own good and fail to save this movie? Keep listening. Lied from behind the door and looked into my eyes. I had to concentrate to keep my mind from wandering off on these short trips. It was the neighborhood I grew up in and where I'd worked most as a paramedic. And it held more ghosts per square foot than any other. You little starstruck in the windows. All right, so there's a scene from the movie we're discussing today, a, a pretty early on scene in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. That is uh, Frank Pierce, as played by Nicolas Cage, doing a little bit of his monologue, uh, mm-hmm. which kind of runs throughout the movie. But uh, a paramedic doing a short trip back to the hospital. You're being introduced to him in this uh, stage of really kind of being burnt out yeah. uh, in, in his job as a paramedic. And uh, yeah. the movie goes from there. Yeah, it's interesting to yeah start with a man near the end of his rope, and uh, that's it. That's, and then that's, we'll see if he reaches the end of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that is Bringing Out the Dead, yeah. um, and which we uh, are picking as another part of our uh, gap year project we've been undertaking this year. Mm-hmm. This is a Scorsese gap film, which um, I, I uh, was really excited to catch up with. I yeah. know technically you had seen this, Ryan. Yeah, I don't even know when I saw it, and I didn't remember much about it. And and I, before we uh, really dig into it, I am curious, though, did, did watching it dig up any of those memories or was it really kind it was, of like wow this really is like i've never seen it before it, it really was more or less like i hadn't seen it before okay yeah i had totally forgotten john goodman was in i had forgotten about the cast and it's a it's a stellar cast amazing cast especially it's like a who's who of 1999 for sure <laughs> right yeah um but i uh i'm very very glad we're watching it again because i almost feel bad saying i had seen it before mm, mm, okay Maybe that would be a good place to start, though, is 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 either why I hadn't seen it or why yeah. you didn't seem to remember it that much when you had. Now, did you see it when it came out, though? No, no, okay. no, no, no. It was in one of those, you know, clusters of just, oh, this movie, this movie. And I, I think yeah, what I do so. remember is somebody, either somebody saying to me or reading, it was probably somebody saying to me, like, oh, that, that one is actually good. Like, mm. it's, it's worth seeing because... 
I think my thoughts about it had been what everybody's everybody said about it, which was like nobody says bringing out the dead right. is up there with the ones that you should see. Well, and in fact, if you see like ranked lists of Scorsese films, it usually hovers around the bottom a lot of times. Yeah, the bottom like. of the... I was actually just checking that and and the couple... The, the two lists I had just looked at while we were sitting here had it like pretty much in the bottom middle. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know what... So this is 99. Yep. I had seen some Scorsese even by then. I mean, I was still only in high in 99, school. 99, I had not. No? Okay, I so I mean, it. by then I had seen... Well, let me say, okay, so Gangs of New York had not come out just yet, um, but uh, I had seen Goodfellas by then. I had seen Casino by then. I think the first Scorsese I watched was Raging Bull. Okay. And I didn't see that till quite a bit later, actually. Okay. I mean, I do remember seeing the trailer for this movie, and I was actually mm-hmm. a big Nicolas Cage fan because I, lo- I loved The Rock and Con Air. Yeah. Uh, so, like, Michael Bay, Nicolas Cage <laughs> yeah. was where I was at at that time in my life. You weren't maybe ready for uh, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, Nicolas Cage. And I Cage. do think, though, if that, that if the movie had blown up, if it had been a success, I probably would have seen it because I was mm-hmm. that much of a Nicolas Cage fan and I had seen mm-hmm. enough yep. Scorsese. But, I, but it was just that movie of Scorsese's that just kind of came and went. Mm-hmm. And even later on, as I was catching up with Scorsese, it was always one of those where I was like, yeah, maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll get to it. Yeah. Well, I, I know I've talked about Joel Siegel and his... Uh, your, your Good Morning America yeah, family? Yeah, my Good Morning America. Um, was he not a fan? I, 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 I don't think he was. Like, I, I think I remember... I remember him like showing clips and just the sense I, I remember getting was that this was a weird movie. Mm-hmm. So whether it was Joel Siegel or not, I got that sense. Yeah. That like, oh, this movie was a miss. It was kind of a yeah. kind of a weird one. Just not like try again. Scorsese. Yeah. For whatever reason, there just seemed to be a lot working against this movie. Yeah. I, I did not know who Paul Schrader was at the time. So no. that wouldn't have been the peel factor for me at no. all. But, but it's just kind of surprising no. that I, even now... I think it took me a long time to even know that he wrote the movie. Or yeah. I, should, I should say co-wrote, based on a Joe Connolly novel. Right, yeah, adapted a novel. Yeah, adapted it. Um, yeah, he certainly wouldn't have been a draw for me. Even, I mean, even in 1999, I didn't quite know who Martin Scorsese yeah. was. But even by 99, I had already seen Last Temptation of Christ. Wow, geez. A couple times. Wow, what? How old were you in 1999? I was 16. I saw that movie for the first time when I was like 13 or 14 because my dad was in that passion like play where he was playing Judas and he was doing it for like uh, preparation for his character. We talked about that in one of our past episodes. So I, so, so even, okay. So by, by 99, I would say I'd probably seen Last Temptation maybe twice. Mm -hmm. The thing with me and Scorsese at that point was that I just knew that I found his movies thoroughly entertaining to watch. And they always left me with just this like little bit of like mystery to them, I guess. Sure. Well, especially Last Temptation, where mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, that movie's just weird, mm-hmm. and it 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 makes me think in a way that cinema at that time had not really done. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know that movie has plenty of detractors who don't like it at all. Yeah, for sure. But but at the same time, I feel like that is a movie that is made for thinking. Yes. You are supposed to think about that movie. Right. Yeah. I, I remember, so I've mentioned her before, but, but my the theater director in high school that I had, her name is Ann Johnson. She was an English teacher and theater director. And she had such a huge influence on my early interest in movies. But as somebody who liked acting, she knew like, oh, you should watch this movie, like this performance, mm-hmm. like these sorts of things, you know, were... Um, 
kind of the in for me. And so I remember she mentioned like Raging Bull. She was, she said like, oh, recently this group n- named Raging Bull, the best movie of the eighties. Um, I got, I, I picked up the VHS at the library and I still had to run things by my parents if they were going to sure. be like checking yeah. them out with me. And I was like, oh, this is rated R. And I wasn't putting it together. It's from like the eighties. I'm like, but it's in black and white. Right. So like, <laughs> remember when you were that age and black and white just meant old. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I, I showed my mom, my mom was like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, it's Raging Bull. I'm like, it's rated R, but it's black and white. So it's probably pretty old. And she was like, yeah, and I think R ratings were different back then. Right. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then I watched it and I was like, that's so funny. Oh, <laughs> 1980. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, and an R like, rating is just an R yeah. rating. Like what? Like, like the, black and white. I guess it can just be a choice. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, it's, there's color too. Wait, wait. They had they color. Done color. They had color. Just they... color the whole time. Uh, but no, I like. I really like Raging Bull, and then I watched uh, Gangs of New York in the theater, and like you know, it, it kind of yeah. kickstarted everything. I, but I, it was certainly at that time. Bringing Out the Dead was still only had detractors, and it almost currently still yeah. only has detractors. The thing that I think for me is really important about Scorsese is Spielberg was probably the first time i paid attention to who a director was yeah but i think scorsese was the second and scorsese was like the adult version of that for me where it was like spielberg yeah. was kind of like my coming of age more younger teenage mm-hmm. like oh this there's a there's a person who's making all these movies i like yeah and then there was like oh there's kind of an adult version of that in scorsese like mm-hmm. these adult movies that are made for they're they're made for adults and yeah. for people who want to think about the movies they're watching and be entertained right and there's, you know, a person behind that. That was maybe one of the first times beyond Spielberg where I actually sought out movies because a certain person made them. Right. And so Scorsese for me is always going to have that really mm-hmm. special place where he opened up a whole kind of new world to me. Yeah. 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 For me, it was uh, probably like around the same time Scorsese and David Fincher and P.T. Mm. Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Probably Those like, would come soon after, like yeah. very soon after. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, yeah, we, we kind of walked through our personal Scorsese history. All right, well, yeah, so then we got that out of the way. But um, uh, Do you have a, a letterbox rating on, on your first viewing? Yeah, this, this is a, it's kind of a bizarre thing because I, I did really like this movie. I'll prob- I would probably give it a f- between a four and a four and a half. But I will say that I struggled a little bit as I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into maybe where it redeemed itself for me. Mm. Um, but it is such a scorsese movie yep. it's such a paul schrader movie and mm-hmm. it's such a nicholas cage movie mm-hmm. it is all three of those things and i love all three of them and it is all three of them yeah like it's just as much mm-hmm. any one of those at times but, in really good harmony and at times <laughs> with some sandpaper like friction yeah. to it but i think ultimately it makes it better but i can see why the movie didn't click with everyone yeah i don't know what was your what was your experience like well prepare for a fight <laughs> because uh i also said four and a half <laughs> Jeez, one of these days we will disagree right yeah maybe if we need yeah if we need to <laughs> if it if it happens um but i think i came around to it maybe quicker and it, it may it might be because i watched it in two nights maybe you watched it in two nights too it was a i mean it's just the reality of my life yeah, right now right. it was a couple different sittings for me and yeah. i i wish it wasn't that way and if i had to watch it again i'd probably make myself sit down and watch it in one sitting yeah and um so as it started i was like oh this is a lot 
And then <laughs> it sure is. And then as it went on, I stopped it. I basically stopped it two thirds of the way through after the Ving Rames section. And I kind of spent the day sort of just working it over in my head. And then when I went back to it the second day for arguably a much crazier third than the previous two thirds, even as crazy as those are, I I felt like I had kind of entered the space to watch that movie better. And I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I, I felt like thinking about it as a Martin Scorsese movie in the context of the other movies, because I think people can do that in a really negative way that's sort of like, well, this is like Taxi Driver, but I like Taxi Driver better, so, so I don't like this movie. Good. Yeah. I feel like this movie is in much more conversation with the other films that Scorsese has made than maybe some other ones, because I, I kind of felt like there are ways to compare it to other movies, or at least oh, see sure. it as an offshoot of some of his other movies. There's a, there's a dialogue, I think, that's definitely going on. Right. On top of the fact that it is visually so remarkable that, like, I'm thinking in 1999, how could you not at least see that no one made a movie like this right. ever? And certainly not at the time. And I'm looking at the Oscar nominees for that year. And if these were the kinds of movies that people were interested Championing in. And are thinking were the, the, the cream of the crop of that year. Yeah, that this movie doesn't fit there. The only possible exception would be being John Malkovich. Okay. Well, what else do we got? Um, so, the, the, like, The Cider House Rules, The Sixth Sense, American Beauty, Boys Don't Cry, The End of the Affair, did I ever say The Insider? Um, no, there yet. was a Woody Allen movie, Sweet and Lowdown, Girl Interrupted, The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Hurricane, The Straight Story. I feel like all of those are very conventional mm -hmm. with some outliers like being John Malkovich, like Magnolia, but otherwise like, you know, Meryl Streep for Music of the Heart. It's very... Pedestrian? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Because I mean, like The Matrix came out that year and it was only nominated for like effects stuff and yeah. editing stuff. Um, but like Thelma Schoonmaker wasn't nominated for an editing Oscar, which wow. feels like she absolutely should have been. Of course, yeah. Um, the Green Mile that year, you know, like that was what was capturing attention. Mm -hmm. I, I see why Ebert compared it to Fight Club just because they're both so stylistic. Right. But I, I just, I feel like, how could you watch this and not be excited by it sure. at the very least? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, you, in, and I, especially in the editing and in the camera mm -hmm. work, the actual movement of the camera. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, one of the things I didn't like about I just didn't like the way it looked. It's very, uh, yeah. It's super dark. It's super saturated, super high contrast, mm -hmm. very dark. I couldn't tell if it was something that um, I didn't like because it felt a little dated to me because I do think mm -hmm. that was kind of a look. Mm -hmm. Fight Club has a little bit of that look to it. Yeah. Uh, what else? Maybe even a little bit of Moulin Rouge has a little bit of that look to it. Definitely that saturated. Saturated. Yeah. That saturated kind of look. And this, this movie is like saturated but without the color. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's just like really high contrast saturated with a lot of just blacks and grays and whites and reds and, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if they were using a filter or what they were doing, but that was definitely like a, mm -hmm. a, a somewhat sideways Scorsese choice because this movie, even though it is New York, it is nighttime, it doesn't look like Taxi Driver. 
No. And it doesn't look like Mean Streets even. Mean Streets has a little mm-hmm. bit of that red kind of tint to it. Yeah. Taxi Driver is beautifully shot, you know, yeah. actually. Um, but and I and I know this because I actually yeah, just, watched. just watched both those movies uh, to kind of just get some context of because this is nighttime New York Scorsese. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like in that way it is very much in his wheelhouse. But this has its own look to it, yeah. and I just don't like it as much as I like the other two. And I can understand um, that, but I think what I'm what when I talked about like watching this as a Scorsese movie, yeah, I couldn't help but admire admire the choice because yeah, 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 yeah. it's like. He went for something. He went you for, know? He was, like yeah, he, he could have remade Taxi Driver yes. at night with a with a doing something different. Know, but it's one of the things that sets it apart and doesn't invite the comparison. Right. And I mean there I shouldn't say there's no color. Like there's the scenes at the Oasis that that obviously have more color to them and there's style there, right? Well, there are and, scenes and they definitely stand out. They, they pop. They pop. Both yeah. of them are two of the biggest ones and I think Two of my favorite scenes are scenes that revolve around the Oasis. The first one, and then like the sort of dream sequence that happens there. And then the second one is when he saves Psy and the lights, like the sparks and yes, the way the city yeah, looks. The fireworks and yeah. And those are those are both moments where he either thinks he will finally find re- find relief and see beauty, or he is actually working his way towards relief and seeing beauty. Mm-hmm. So he he uses those moments sparingly, but they're super important. Well, and this is what I was going to get at because I've never seen a movie like this where I can actually tell you I didn't like the way this movie looked, but it had to be that way. Yeah. And the reason it had to be that way and what redeemed the entire movie for me was, you know, a little bit of those scenes, but honestly, it all clicked for me in literally the last scene final shot i was like that's why it was like that yeah that i mean that's that is telling the arc of a character that is telling character transformation through nothing but cinema through nothing but the visual image Mm -hmm. the image of you watching an entire movie of this dank dark gritty place that just seems like a hellscape yeah and then through nothing other than just the change in the lighting in the camera Mm mm-hmm uh, a moment of him just just being close to another body, mm-hmm. resting, and you actually see the filter taken away, yep. like sort of the light coming in from the window, and mm-hmm. the whole look of the movie changes. And it does by the end, before it kind of totally washes out, there's a moment where it does look like the end of the affair, mm-hmm. or a movie like that. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, It's kind of like saying, that choice was made for a reason. Yeah. That, was, that was his perception. That was his view. That was the way he saw the world. That actually maybe even is the way the world is. But here's a moment of warmth that to me was like, oh, that all makes sense. And that's actually a really bold choice yeah. to make a movie that actually doesn't look that good. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to look at. It doesn't at. feel good to look at. It's not visually pleasing in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's something that's a little bit like, you know, maybe you, it's a little washed out. Maybe you yeah. should have <laughs> yeah. dialed Does it this back guy know what he's bit? doing? <laughs> right. Um, and then to and be then like final shot, I, I've just never seen a movie where yeah. it was calling attention to the fact that, yeah, it didn't look that good. Mm-hmm. There was something not right about the look of that movie, mm-hmm. you know, and it should, shouldn't have because, right. because it's it, because there's something the not right about the right. psyche of yeah. this person that you're right. in. in, in Roger Ebert's review, which he gave four out of four stars. Like, yeah, he really yeah. loved it. Um, he quotes, uh, Harry Knowles saying that you can enjoy a Scorsese film with the sound off or with the sound on and the picture off. And, I you know I haven't thought about that while watching other Scorsese movies, but you can absolutely say that about bringing out the mm-hmm. dead. 
don't know if enjoy is the right word fully for this movie, but you can, you get everything he's saying. Yeah. It takes a special filmmaker to do that. And you don't even realize really that it's happening. And it's a risk. Like he, he's swung for it and committed to it. And it was bold and it was brave. And it's why he is so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like that's why he, that's why he is who he is. Well, one of the lines I really loved from that Ebert review is right before that, where he says that how Scorsese is never an autopilot, never panders, never sells out, always goes for broke. And this is the part I love. To watch his films is to see a man risking his talent, not simply exercising it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really what we're talking about here. Of course, he knows how to make a beautiful, great movie. But if he wants to tell a different story or if he wants to try something different, he's so good mm-hmm. that he's just going to risk it. Yeah. He's going to risk it all. Because he's that good. Yeah. <laughs> Not just simply exercise, like flexing his muscles. Right. I don't ever feel like Scorsese is just flexing. Mm-mm. I feel like he's playfully maybe trying something new or like, not even playfully, he's like exploring a thought he's had mm-hmm. in a visual way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just him kind of showing off or saying this is, it's just, it feels like he is just fully invested yeah. in this story. And uh, if telling it in a better way means taking some really weird risk yeah. that might even kind of ostracize or like turn off some of your audience, yeah. like it's about the movie. That's it's about the story, do. you know? Yeah. And he's incredibly thoughtful. I feel like every time I read about him in a movie and like something about it, it's he's had an idea for decades and he has all these ideas and I think he just finds the right time to do it. And like finds the project like, oh, that's where this idea or this theme yeah. even, not just not just cinematic technique, but a theme or an idea or a type of character or a type of story. Yeah. Well, and I always get the sense that he's always learning mm. and not even just learning like through what he wants to try, but he's just such a lover of film. Yeah. I remember, you know, just actually not too long ago when he, I, I was reading um, where he was doing some kind of panel with, with Spike Lee and they were talking about Black Klansmen. And just the way that Scorsese was so just, he was so enamored with Spike Lee in that movie, the way that Spike Lee cut at the very end to documentary. Yeah. And that like Scorsese was just kind of like, it felt like he was learning from Spike Lee. Mm. Like it, it wasn't just, hey, I'm Scorsese and I'm championing this because I can. It's just like, I was blown away by your film. Yeah. And you can tell he's probably filing that away. And yeah. like, he's like, this guy showed me something. Right. And I feel like, that's Scorsese, his whole life has been like he's he himself is in a film school all the time and right. just learning things and filing them away and just loving cinema for what it can do and never he's never stale about it. Right. You know? In an interview with Thelma Schoonmaker, who's edited so many of Scorsese's uh-huh. movies, um, the interviewer was talking about how Scorsese um, has such a deep knowledge and appreciation for film that he'll bring back old movies that have been forgotten for whatever reasons. Like some of the politics of the day, a, a movie didn't get seen because somebody crossed someone and like, sure. whatever he would do that. And Schoonmaker said he doesn't only help older directors. When he sees a movie he likes by a young director, he writes to them and tells them that, which is a, such a wonderful thing for them. He has relationships with directors all over the world in the most remote countries. He keeps abreast of all that's going on in world filmmaking. He loves world filmmaking actually more than most filmmaking today. So he's got this wonderful ability to give back to those who've helped him become a director, and he helps young directors come along as well. Wes Anderson was one of them. He wrote to him immediately when he saw Bottle Rocket, and they've become dear friends. That's, yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah. It's awesome. Instead of like seeing people as competition, he sees them as teachers, yeah. you know, people who can teach him and who he can 
collaborate with. Like they're his coworkers, right? right? Not just these, he's not, and that shows he's not out there to play the game. He's out there to advance cinema. Right. What and, he can do. And this movie did it and everybody missed it. We all missed it. <laughs> so now we need to go back. Right. <laughs> so then we should so go back. So we will, we will save you, Martin Scorsese. Right. Exactly. We're going to give you that hand up out of the pavement. That's right. I'll be awaiting your letter. Um, if you're listening. And so I guess I, I feel like we should probably focus on the movie. Yeah. We've done a lot of Scorsese. If it's not clear now, we we, we like this guy's this, stuff. This we think guy, this guy's all right. He's we all think right he's guy. got something. Write this name down. Martin Scorsese. He's going to be big. Yeah, I, I got a feeling. Got a feeling about this guy. So beyond the look of the film, if you were able to put your bias aside as yeah. you watched it, <laughs> um, what are what are what are some of the things that uh, that grabbed you about it, or what stood out to you early on? I think immediately what stood out to me was just how much of a Paul Schrader movie this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 it's valuable to really think a little bit about this movie in the context of something like Taxi Driver. Yeah. It's also valuable to think about it in terms of some of his later work, like First Reformed, Card Counter, Master Gardener, which I haven't seen. Um, and even to think about it in, in the context of something like Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. This being a guy who is at a bit of a crisis at the end of his rope, but also just about it being a job. Yeah. It's always, it's, it's either a taxi cab driver, a priest, mm-hmm. a card counter, a gardener. Carpenter. A, you, a carpenter. <laughs> or I just want <laughs> even, in, in that sense, it's really just, just someone who, in, in that sense, feels called to be a religious leader. Yeah. What I find that Trader seems to be really interested in, I think, is how what you do shapes the way you think. And what you think shapes what you do. Yes. In all of these movies, you've got the internal monologue, yeah. which is very philosophical usually. And it yep. usually hits on some ideas about spirituality, um, ideas about life. Purpose. But it's always through this lens of what they're doing yep. and how that shapes the way that they make sense of the world. And I do think it was actually just kind of spelled out in Taxi Driver, because I recently revisited after watching Bringing Out the Dead, but there's the scene where... Travis is trying to tell this guy named the Wiz that he's having these bad thoughts, which is very similar to what Frank's going through. He's none of these people are kind of hiding about what they're going through. Right. They're very open. But in Taxi Driver, Travis is saying, I've got these really bad thoughts. I don't know what to do with them. And the Wiz says, A man takes a job. That job becomes who he is. You do a thing, and that's what you are. Mm. You get a job and you become the job. Mm. I think Trader is just really fascinated by what life is like doing different jobs. Yeah, but I think what stands out to me more is that he is interested in people who believe they have a calling. Right. They have these higher aspirations, these higher values that transcend the job, but they think the job is the way to do that thing. And in this case with Frank, you're talking about a guy who... You know, it's it's pretty clear this is a person that does care about humanity. Yeah. Well, he thinks his job and, is to save people. Right. I guess what I was maybe thinking about is the dialogue that this movie has both with Taxi Driver and with Last Temptation of Christ. Frank, as someone who also mm-hmm. feels like they have a calling mm-hmm. to save people. And you get 
the sort of burden that Willem Dafoe's Jesus character has in Life's Temptation of Christ, where it's kind of like they just feel like they're always failing, even though they yep. feel like it is a calling. Mm-hmm. And then you've got also a taxi driver, that whole sort of like New York environment mm-hmm. that this shares, and just Travis's sense of there needs to be more order in this world. It needs to be cleaned up. <laughs> like yeah. somebody's got to do it, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that in Frank, but it comes from a little bit more of a place of compassion and also a place of futility by the end. Right. He's not going to resort to the tactics and the violence of someone like Travis Bickle. Or Tom, his partner. Or Tom is section. more like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this isn't a, a taxi driver episode or a last citation, but like we said, this this movie is kind of in dialogue with the others. You've got, people who think they need to save the world basically yeah and by the way this is in first reform too you're right right travis thinks he needs to do it by cleaning up the filth but he never questions whether he's doing the right thing or not then you've got jesus in last temptation who debilitatingly questions whether he's doing the right thing yeah and then you've got frank who is so sure of what the right thing is but can't do it because he thinks for sure saving people means bringing them back to life or making them not die. By the end, it's not a question of, are you succeeding or failing at saving people? It's what does it mean to save someone? And by the end with uh, Mary's father, he realizes that to save him is to let him die. Mm -hmm. And to save Mary is to let him die. Right. And so this whole thing where he's been torturing himself because he couldn't save one girl, which, by the way, was kind of his fault. He kept getting the intubation tube wrong. Rose, the Rose, yeah, yeah. the ghost character that keeps coming up in the movie. And nobody would say he's wrong, that saving people's lives is the way to save people, right? But he's getting it wrong because he's putting this success or failure binary on it. Yeah. Of course, success is saving the life. Failure is losing the life. But it's way more nuanced than that. And because he doesn't see the nuance, whether it's because of who he is or because the job has ingrained it in him so deeply, he is tortured. Yeah, well, I think he... I think we see him as he is realizing that the goal isn't necessary to save people because it's in that line where he says, I'm only here to bear witness. Yes. I realized that my training was useful in less than 10% of the calls and saving someone's life was rarer than that. After a while, I grew to understand that my role was less about saving lives than about bearing witness. I was a grief mob. It was enough that I simply showed up. (laughs) Except with Rose. Maybe some of the other partners that he's had, the other EMTs that that he's been working with, Mm -hmm. they've, they've come to terms with that. That is the job. Well, let's kind of pick them apart. Because John Goodman has done it in a way that has made him John Goodman to callous me, to it. Well, John Goodman to me is, he's just, it is a job. Mm-hmm. This is a job. Yeah. I'm I'm just as concerned about getting my beef low main yeah. as I am with saving the next person. It's just a job. Maybe more so. <laughs> You're right, yeah. Like his joy kind of comes from, what, what's his next meal going to be? Right. But he's also doing it because he's got to provide for his right. family. He doesn't sense a higher calling in it. And then you've got Ving Rhames who senses a higher calling in a way that is not caring. Right. Well, I see. I feel like with the Ving Rhames, it's it's sensing a higher calling, but seeing your loss of any control in that and that you're really just an instrument. Mm-hmm. The wind blew back up. Yeah, the wind. Oh, no, that was Jesus, son. 
It was, the, it was also the wind. No, the wind, my black ass, that was Jesus. Don't tell me about the good book now. I'll preach heaven and beat the hell out of you. Don't tell me that now. I was going, son. There's someone up on high. Thank you, Jesus. Hadn't have pulled me in. Would you turn left here? I want to make a stop. The point is, everybody go through a stretch where folks gonna die on you. Just don't meditate on it. But he also is a, he's a drinker yeah. and, uh, you know, there, and he's reckless and he's reckless. Yeah. But he also has a, a very important line when he, they're talking about dealing with people. And he says, first comes love. Second comes mercy. Hmm. And I don't know if Frank wants to save people because he loves them. It feels a lot more selfish than that or self serving, but he did, I think eventually come to see what it means to love someone when, uh, Tom beats Noel into a yeah, coma, right? And he gives him mouth to mouth. The right. first time he's done that, Ever. that was not a newborn. Yeah, not an infant. He he learned to love Noel in that situation, and then he learned mercy when he let Mary's father die. Right, and this is where you get a bit of that traitor touch to it, hooking the EKG up to himself. Yeah, instead of like Jesus' idea of sacrificing his life so others may live, it's. Mm-hmm. Frank using his life so another's can be taken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of this Schrader play on atonement. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really fascinating. Like, yeah. he actually is putting the heart monitor on him, saying, like, use my life, basically. Yeah. Use my life so that you so can that slip you, away so from yours. So you can slip away from yours. Yeah. And then I think Tom... Is his name Tom, or am I just thinking Tom Sizemore? No, I think his name's Tom. Okay. Yeah, that's his name, that's the, that's the last partner that's... Yeah. He is, the way he's dealing with he's it. He's like the cautionary tale of what will happen if you keep on this path. Right. You know, you can't define failure that way and care so much about failing and keep your humanity. You are going to become a cynical, nihilistic shell. There's almost some logic to it. Like, if saving someone is the goal, you would kind of want to be in a situation where there are more people who need saving. So why not go out and beat people up? Why not break windows? Why not cause injuries right. so that you can save them? There's a really interesting interview. It's one of the special features on the DVD with Scorsese. And he's kind of talking about what fascinated him about Joe Connolly's book, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of Joe Connolly's book, by the way, he was a paramedic right. in New York. And a lot of these stories, it's not like it's all happening in three days like in the movie, but they are sort of a, a compilation of things that he actually went through. Mm-hmm. In the movie, even, Frank talks about how saving a life can feel like a drug, better than a drug, that you'll be high for like a week off of saving someone's life. Mm -hmm. Um, But what Scorsese found was interesting is he was pointing out what it does to your ego. And my sense is that Tom is someone who has the ego of what it means to save a life. But what Scorsese was saying is that a good paramedic or the ones that last are the ones that have to actually break through that ego and humiliate themselves down to where they actually have compassion was the word he used. Like giving someone mouth to mouth. Yes. And that is such a powerful and important moment in that movie is giving Noel mouth to mouth because that's the moment of compassion. And, And again, this brings back even going and bringing in a little bit of that dialogue with Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. Is this is ultimately Christ's realization as well he's ready to be sacrificed because he understands what it means yeah um and that's kind of what's happening with frank with this noel character where he's seeing that you have to be able to kind of pull your own ego down to where you actually have compassion once again for people yeah because it feels clear to the audience and clearly not clear to frank that 
all of his despair over not saving people is about himself. It's not grief for the lives lost. It's shame for him not doing what he thought he was supposed to do. And it was pride, right? And that moment where he loses his pride is the moment that he turns that corner. Because all of that haunting had made him really disgusted by people. Because now instead of people being independent agents with dignity, they were potential failures. Right. And so that's such a, that is such a, probably a much more universal thought that if you start to see people as only markers of your personal success, as soon as things start go, don't going, start going south, every human being looks like a potential failure. And that is a horrible way to look at other people. And to connect it to Travis Bickle, he sees people as either pure or a threat to purity. And so he sees Sybil Shepard's character, he sees Jodie Foster's character. These are potential purity. And everybody else is... Scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. Going to bring them down. And it'd be best if they were just wiped away. Right. And that's where there's a strong connection because that is where Frank is at. It would be better if Noel wasn't there, Mr. O wasn't yeah. there, if these people didn't exist. And yes, and I think that's a combo of what you're talking about, where he's seeing these people as a failure, but it's also the environment. And it's Absolutely. It, I've never seen a movie that really, I think, in an exaggerated way, shows just the reality of uh, what we talk about sometimes is compassion fatigue. Yep. You know, like this is someone who is just, he's overworked and he's done this long enough. And, and actually there was a... Um, this is from a, um, an article I read by a Fran Del Pizzo called Bringing Out the Dead, Scorsese's Tale of Guilt and Compassion. But she brings in this part that was in Schrader's first draft screenplay where it started by saying after World War One it was called Shell Shock. After World War Two it was called Battle Fatigue. After Vietnam, it was called Post Traumatic Stress Disorder. Mm-hmm. Frank Pierce drives an EMS vehicle for Our Lady of Mercy Hospital in New York City. He has been a paramedic for five years. That's actually how the first draft of the screenplay read. That well, at least, at least according to this, and it's 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 cited as Paul Schrader bringing out the dead first draft screenplay, nineteen ninety seven. Wow. And what I think is important to think about this is it's not it, it's it's everything you're saying about him internalizing this as basically seeing everything as a success or failure of him, but it's also just a very straightforward. He's got post traumatic stress disorder. Yes. First of all, and second of all, he's in a line of work where if you're overworked, you just have compassion fatigue. You do not you stop caring about these people. Yeah. You look at all the people in the hospital right. working. I was going to say that. And the way that they even just talk to the patients and you get it. Like yeah. it's not like you're looking at these people thinking they're awful people, right. but you realize they're doing what they have to do yeah. because this is an overrun hospital. Right. What else can they do? I mean, right. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Like, nope, you need to go. Nope, yeah. get them in here. And like On a way, way, way smaller scale with way smaller stakes and not in a hellscape New York City. Go in on, the late 90s. prepare to be canceled. <laughs> Say but it. Say it. It happens in my line of work in the library. <laughs> where you're just sitting yeah. at the reference desk and mm-hmm. after a while... You just have days, especially if you just know you need to take a break Mm -hmm. or you need a vacation or something. You just have days where you're just like, I don't want to deal with this person again. Mm -hmm. And you really forget that you were there to help people. You got into this because you wanted to make the world better. Mm -hmm. You wanted to actually be a true source of help for people in their time of need. And uh, I just think this movie does a really good job of showing like how your environment and being exposed in that line of work mm-hmm. to just trauma after trauma after trauma, mm-hmm. they all have different ways of dealing with it. 
Frank is just someone I think that just almost seems like he is just dead set on not losing that compassion and it's driving him nuts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or you, or you just realize that the, the problems are so much bigger than you. Yeah. Like there's a thing where you start to resent the people you have compassion for because it's draining you so badly. Yes. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. And yeah. that's what he, that's what he's experiencing. And maybe what, is coming up in the movie is this idea of like constantly reconfiguring your idea of compassion because since he hadn't done that saving people meant saving a life it then turned him in on himself so that the the compassion wasn't there anymore it was this guilt and he felt like in place of compassion guilt will suffice i can show that i cared about those people by feeling guilty for not saving them mm, yeah and obviously there's going to be like fatigue for that, and you're ultimately going to never feel guilty. You're going to become a sociopath, like Tom Sizemore's character. Mm-hmm. But that switch from compassion to guilt is not being able to acknowledge that I can't do everything, so I'll move on, which can feel callous, but you, you have to. Right. And so that, to me, another like extremely poignant line is when he asks Mary to forgive him, because he couldn't save his her father. And she says, no one asked yes. you to suffer. Yeah. That was your that was idea. Your idea. Yeah. And that is absolutely true with that sort of suffering. When you are so focused on your own failures that you suffer as penance and nobody asked you to, and you're not helping anybody by doing that. Right. It's just such an incredible depiction of burnout yeah. like you said compassion fatigue but just burnout if you've got a, any sort of job i mean as a teacher definitely yeah I, I, I can imagine you know i could every day wake up and beat myself up over what i haven't done the days before but that's going to make me cause further deficiencies by not doing what needs to be done today one of my favorite scenes is the first scene at the oasis I, I'm still not sure what to make of it. The Oasis scene? Yeah. When because, he takes the drug? Right. Because everything Sai is telling him is true. Did, did you give Mary something called Red Death? Excuse me. Red Death. Tell me something, Frank. Does killing your clients sound like good business sense to you, hmm? See, the kid's selling their bread death and just trying to make a quick buck. They don't got no respect for me or the work I've done in this community. But don't worry, they're gonna be taken care of. I got Tiger working on it. I should be going, I just quit. Oh, look, sleep is all stress reduction, all right? Here, now if you take one of these, Sleep for two hours. That's all you need. Why do you think I'm telling you this, Frank? For my health? Now, brother, you, you gotta look at yourself in the mirror, all right? Kanita, would you get on your friend here a glass of water, please? And he takes the drug, and then the vision is of him helping people out of the concrete. And then those people are helping other people right. out of the concrete. 
it's like getting close. He's starting to see that idea that other people can help other people, but he's still the one pulling people first, right? Like he hasn't fully reached it. And so it's this scene where we're like, oh no, Mary, she just went and used again. Right. Then it's like, oh, but Frank is close to getting it, <laughs> like in that situation. Well, and, and, and I also go back to the last scene. There's another component of this where mm-hmm. when you dedicate your life to help people, it's kind of a simple idea, but also the movie is just sort of at the end saying that if you're not getting that from anybody else, your tank's just empty. Right. You know, that like... You need other the, people. And, and, that's, and that's a message for all of society. Like we all need to kind of give to each other, yeah. you know, and, and Mary in that movie is the only one that's willing to kind of give anything to him. Yeah. Like there was that one scene, I don't even remember what they were doing, but it was, it was Frank talking to Mary and it was a very straightforward shot, reverse shot. But then one time Mary's talking and it fades out and fades into a profile of her. Then it mm. fades out and fades into a regular over the shoulder shot. And then it fades out and fades back into the opposite profile of her. And then it fades out and fades back into the conversation and like doesn't happen again in the movie. Yeah. And it only happens. It's very fast relatively speaking, for a fade out and fade in. Is it just that Frank now sees her as an icon almost, mm. you know? Like now she's well, sort of her name of this, is Mary. Right. So. Well and like and there's like Magdalene sides of her and like Virgin, Virgin Mary side, sides yeah. to her. And it's it's interesting because Mary Magdalene needed to be saved by Jesus and Virgin Mary did not, you know? Right. And it's kind of not until he sees her as the one who doesn't need saving that he hmm. finally is yeah. able to be fed. We talked a, a bit about the end scene, shot and we mentioned the lighting, which is very clear and to me feels very uh, Last Temptation of Christ final, yeah. final shot. I mean, that movie ends with right. light. Yep. But also, and it's not overt, so maybe I'm reading into it, but it it became clear to me by the end that Mary was sort of a, a like a mother of Jesus figure. Um, the final shot is very like the Pieta to me, where she's kind of holding his body, sort of like mm-hmm. he's not as he's not dead, you know, like the 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 classic Pieta s- sculptures, but he is laying down on her, and she is you know the one holding him, um, which I thought was an interesting kind of. Well, it's very maternal. Reference. Yeah. So I don't know. He just makes all these choices that are just like, again, even if, if, if you're, if, if you didn't get the movie in 1999, how could you not be like, something's happening? Yeah. Or how could you not even just be like, it's a great Scorsese movie. I mean, it's got the yeah. music in it, yeah, you right. know, like it's got the needle drops, it's got, <laughs> it's got the great score. <laughs> yeah. It's just, what wasn't there? I don't know. You know, how insane can you have a quintessential Scorsese movie that is thoroughly unpredictable? And like nothing you've seen from him before. That's true. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Great yeah. Nicolas Cage performance. Great Paul Schrader yeah. script. Great Martin Scorsese. Great supporting film. cast performances. Great yeah. Patricia Arquette's great. Um, is there a reason that this would be four and a half and not five? Um, I don't know. Well, I I don't think this is fair, but where would you see this in? Kind of a ranking mm. of Scorsese. I was trying to think about I, and that, I, and, and I, then I was and thinking I'm, I'm I want to rewatch the movies before I would do that. I kind of hate myself for even doing. Not, I think it's fine if we want to rank them. But what I hate is I hate when like a band you love or 
a director you love put out something that by any measure, if any other band or any other director had right. put it out, it right. would be like classic, phenomenal, amazing. Yeah. But because it's just one of one several, of their amazing <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. It gets kind of like knocked for not being your favorite one, right? Um, and maybe I'm doing a little bit of that with this movie, where I, I don't know still if it's one of my. It, it is probably getting as we're talking about it, maybe climbing up there. I, there's still parts of this movie I don't really know what to do with. Sure. I think the Oasis scene maybe is one of those. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Which maybe um, we it doesn't need to do something. No, I mean, honestly, you know. Like, the, that's sort of part of the mystery that you you, yeah. you mentioned Scorsese being so good and comfortable. Right. right, yeah. I'm still kind of rustling with it. You know, ask me in a few days and maybe it will be a five-star movie. But yeah. there are some movies where it's like I immediately just know, yeah. like, wow. That, that was, was it, that did it for you. And this one is one that I had to, you know, I, I, I've had to kind of work through a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, that's not a knock against it in any mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It's almost too complex and dense to, right, there's, to, to be so quick. <laughs> it, it, I'll, I'll be honest, like, I still just find it, I find it hard to watch mm-hmm. how gritty this movie is. Mm-hmm. Like, there are parts of this movie where I'm still kind of like, uh, you know, like when yeah. they're rounding up the guy who smells so bad and, yeah. you know, um, you know, it's just, there's a confrontation in some of these Scorsese movies that I still find hard to watch sure. and I don't know how to process it. I don't think Scorsese knows how to process it. Sure. It's part of the beauty of his movies that like he just puts it there right. because it's it's just as false to pretend like it's not there. Right. And so like there's sort of a clean way that we're talking about this movie where mm-hmm. we're talking about like, you know, yeah. things about compassion and this is the res- yeah, this is right. this, this is sort of the neat and tidy It's oversimplifying it. resolution that yeah. Frank comes to and this is how he kind of overcomes it and this yeah. is how these three guys but like the movie still has these like scenes that are like it's hard for me to think about yeah. the fact that we have almost areas gives, of cities that are like this right, and that have failed people like this badly and yeah. that there are people who are this destitute this low this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's a fact of life mm-hmm. it's real mm-hmm. um you know what i'm getting at like yes, I, I do yeah no, that sounds weird for me. Like that's why it's not five star because I just can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> I get but, it though. Like it, it, we've talked about five stars being a personal thing, but I think part of a five star is you see yourself wanting to watch it again, or you yeah. know, like that. There's a there. I think that half star is sort of an enjoyment half star. It could be. And yeah, I, right. I I I do love this movie and respect it, and certainly love the way he made it and the depth of how it's talking about what it's talking about. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Now I'm feeling the way you were feeling. Like, it's challenging, so four and a half. <laughs> um, it's challenging in the best way. Right. But this isn't some made-up dystopia no. hellscape, you know. Well, th- this is this my is... initial reaction was like, was it really like this? And I'm like, well, if anybody's trusted to make a New York movie, it's, it's Martin just... Scorsese. Right. Maybe Spike Lee uh, would be number one above him of living filmmakers, but, but let me tell you, even Spike Lee, I mean, do the right thing is a challenging movie itself, but you still, yeah. there's something about do the right thing where you're like, that eh, seems like a really kind of cool neighborhood. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, this is just uh this is a New York. It's just scary. Yeah. It's a place of death. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, you don't have to make it five. I was asking for myself well, what, what, too. What, what, I don't know. I don't know if I'm coming off right though, as far as like, I'm, I'm reacting the way Scorsese wants you to react. 
you know right, what I mean? Right, like right. that's the purpose. The intent well, is think, for him to kind of show you these parts of society that we don't want to look at. I don't, and we want to pretend don't exist. Right. And I, I think you're. Not, I don't think you're saying because of that. I, I can't give it five stars. I think you're saying it's too complex a movie to put such a definitive like interpretation stamp, stamp on it. Yeah. Of five stars. And oh, I see. Yeah. You want to like you? We just need to sit with it, and who knows? Maybe the more you sit with it, the more I sit with it, it will feel like, yeah, that was a five star yeah. experience. You I, know, like, I, there are some movies that I will watch and immediately be like, that's a five star movie, and then there's other movies that I need to watch two or three times because every time I watch it, I appreciate it mm-hmm. a little bit more. I appreciate mm-hmm. something new about it, and I kind of say to myself, well, if a movie can be that rewarding over and over again. Or maybe if I don't even rewatch it a multiple times, but just over a couple days, I just think about new things about it that it kind of raises and it sticks with me and it doesn't just leave. It doesn't yeah, just become right. a movie that I saw and, and, and yeah. it came and went. Yeah. Um, then it's kind of like, okay, I need to go back and dock that up to five stars. But, but I do want to ask you though, before we kind of wrap this up, because I think it's an interesting question. You know, you technically had seen this before. Yeah. So how do you think it goes from like? Is it just a, a stage of your life now that so. you watch it and it's just like I there are I'm just seeing this differently. I think I think I think that I think uh, I'm a more I guess I think I'm a better movie watcher now. Uh, I don't remember the circumstances I watched it in. You know, like maybe I was distracted or yeah. I wasn't really. Maybe I was tired and I just powered through and you know whatever. Maybe I wasn't ready to see the nuance of it mm-hmm. because it takes work. I think we saw it with a lot of the critics. If if you don't if you don't want to work at it with this movie, or you just don't care to get it, then you can easily sit through the movie and be like, "That was weird." <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, well, I, I mean, I think we're best buds. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know if there's uh, we haven't been for we haven't been anything but best buds for a long time. So and mi- well, maybe that's, that's a good thing. Where, maybe, that's, maybe that's just the uh, the. The spirit of the gap year. It might be. Yeah. I will say it's been, this was a great gap to fill in. Yeah. Scorsese. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we've scoured the internet for irrelevant IMDb trivia. Got to do it. And Nate, you've got one. I wouldn't call it irrelevant. I think it's just another way that Scorsese broke ground. Okay. Um, Did you know? Much like this podcast. This, along with Sleepy Hollow, 1999. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. These were the last movies to be released on the Laserdisc format wow. in North America. The last two. 1999, they were still making new Laserdiscs? Uh, really just for Sleepy Hollow and Bringing Out the Dead, I Yeah, think. I guess so. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, next time you dust off that Sleepy Hollow Laserdisc. Yeah, that's a uh, collector's watch, item. It's, it's got to be. It's the last I, one made. I got to imagine. Somebody has the last Laserdisc ever made. And it's, and it's either Sleepy Hollow or Bringing Out the Dead. And I, I think it's, I would venture to guess that Bringing Out the Dead might even be harder to find on Laserdisc than Sleepy Hollow. I don't know why, but when you go to a lot of record stores, they also sell Laserdiscs. Yeah. And uh, if you see a Bringing Out the Dead Laserdisc, snag that thing up, because yeah. that is one of the last Laserdiscs ever, ever to be made. Yeah. So, irrelevant? Who knows? I mean, I not to the person who's going to make uh, thousands of dollars you selling heard, the the. You heard it here. Laserdiscs. I imagine we're going to see on uh, Antiques Roadshow... Couple mm-hmm. years from now, someone mm-hmm. bringing in uh, bringing out the dead a movie <laughs> that people don't really know about. Uh, director Martin Scorsese, <laughs> who's actually known for the directing the eighth Captain America movie, right. 
you know. I'm imagining that guy in the weird suit and ponytail that yeah. does all like the posters in yeah. Antiques Roadshow. Uh-huh. He's gonna know. He's gonna be the one. He's who gonna knows be the, the guy disc. that knows the value of that bringing out the dead yeah. laser disc. I just I'm know sure. It, so. I'm sure he will. Anyways, um, that's that's my piece. What do you got? Mine. I actually there there wasn't a ton unless you're interested in like uh, ambulance tech. Like I am technical ambulance very, knowledge very much. I'm, I'm not. So I didn't. I didn't, I didn't pick it, but I I made up my own. What irrelevant IMDb trivia? That's so I, irrelevant. I didn't. Though. I didn't post it on IMDb. It's not even on IMDb. It's not on there. <laughs> you're hearing it. You're hearing it for the first time. This is, to my knowledge, one of two movies, Sleepy Hollow, from 1999, to involve someone falling onto a metal fence and impaling themselves. <laughs> Okay. Wait, wait. Oh, the other is, one's a lot more serious than this one. There's some impaling in Braveheart, I think. Not on a fence. But, well, I think this is when, somebody who falls on a fence, is impaled, and stays on the fence. Well, I think you got me. It might be now of poor taste since we were kind of joking about it, but the virgin suicides. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the youngest. Uh, okay. The youngest sister ends up killing herself. All right. Well. You know, uh, it must have been a thing in 99. Oh, I do remember Joel Siegel saying like, you know, I've had enough of people being impaled on fences. <laughs> we saw it in Virgin Suicides. It was hacked then. It's even more hack <laughs> in bringing out, out the, the dead. dead. Right, right. Anyway, all that to say, uh, we think you should watch Bringing Out the Dead. And uh, we're going to tell you about our next movie, which we're taking our, we're kind of doing our yeah, thing break. where we do two months on, one month off. Yeah. So we're taking September off. But we will be back for our holiday spooktacular in October. It's, tis the season. Tis the season already, it's folks. going so fast. It's I mean, we're taking a break. Now. There's, well, there's a break, yeah. But, but yeah. Whatever. It's going to be right around the corner. It will be anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be our 10th ten holiday spooktacular. But man, 10 years. That's that's quite it's a lifetime i mean hey before we announce this this uh this spooktacular this is just a good time to to say go dig through those archives you yeah got, we got a month off yep so you got plenty of time to you go got through and time. catch up on some horror movies we got another you... scorsese episode you can go back and listen to our departed yep. episode with guest and singleton Great episode it was a lot of fun you can listen to any of our spooktaculars because tis the season tis the season uh, soon but yeah this uh, this season, we are going to be doing um, a movie that, honestly, we were just talking about it a little bit off mic, and um, a little bit newer of a movie, but... A little bit. A little yeah. bit. It's a couple years old, but, like, you know, still, like, has reached that level of, we really should be filling in this Everybody's gap. already seen it. Yeah. Now, I've, I'll be honest, I've heard some divided opinions on this. Some people are, like, overrated, and some people are, like, a new master of horror. And uh, you've probably figured it out already. <laughs> you think from that? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about uh, Ari Aster's Hereditary. Now, we've both seen Midsommar. I love Midsommar. You love it. I was. I thought it was good. Yeah. Uh, didn't love it as much as you did. I've talked to some people who really didn't like this movie, thought it was dumb. I've talked to a lot of people who think it's great. Yeah. And, uh, so we're going to find out where we land on that. Uh, pretty much on the strength of Hereditary, Ari Aster has gotten to make whatever he wants, it yeah. feels like. So for that reason, it feels like a movie we should have seen by now. And the truth is, we're a little afraid to. <laughs> Every time we talk about what we're going to watch for the spectacular, 10 years now, we've been like, uh, 
yeah, I guess I can watch that. Because we're both still kind of those kids that we talk about every spooktacular. I mean, it's a holiday spooktacular tradition. The kids who are afraid of the horror section in the video store. We'll never get over we'll, that. Yeah. We'll never get over that. And I I honestly, uh, there are still horror movies that get to me. Sure. I mean, we had, I think a couple of years ago, we talked about The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was about that one, but, but there, was a, there was a night or two where I was like, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I heard, like a little noise. Of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you know anything about this movie? Because I really don't. Like I mean, I know I know who's in it. You know, I know Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Uh, it's about a young girl. Is it? I don't know. Looks like it. From what I gathered, it seems pretty small scale. Like, does it all take place in a house? Or I don't know. I don't think so. No. See, that's I know nothing. Yeah, I don't really know much about it either. But I do know that we've at least got a few listeners out there who are big Ari Aster fans. So yeah. I think it would be great to uh, maybe get some uh, some context beforehand. Like what sure. what what is it? What do we? What, well, what? unless it's one of those movies that it's best if you don't know, then don't say anything. Unless by best you mean scarier, then let us know. <laughs> we don't need it to be any scarier. I don't need to be forty years old in my bed saying, "What is that?" <laughs> <laughs> like putting yeah. the covers over my head. Yeah, with a flashlight. <laughs> Well, that's what we're going to be watching, and we do hope that you watch it with us. Yeah, and um, get into the holiday spirit with that's us. Right. Uh, but, you know, we'll be heading into fall by the time we come back, and mm-hmm. so the, it, it will definitely feel like spooktacular season. Yeah. Uh, and I'm excited to... Twill. To, it's, it's both a gap year and a spooktacular. Two yeah. things to celebrate. Breaking that new ground. Breaking the ground. Yeah. Although I don't think this is the first time we've watched something for the first time for a spooktacular no but, but it is the first time during a gap year it's the first time that we've we've labeled it as such yep it's true so you uh, can't take that away nope. so anyways we hope that you uh definitely will watch that with us and uh that maybe you will uh take the time during this month off to uh go back through some of our past episodes and catch up a little bit we'd love it if you did that uh, but anyways we'd love to hear from you to listen to or comment on this or any of our past episodes Find us at canwestillbefriends.net or email us at feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. You can find us on Facebook at Can We Still Be Friends Podcast or Instagram at Can We Still Be Friends Pod. I think we still are and on threads. threads as is long that, as that's kicking. Is that, is that going to happen? I don't know. Well, I feel what's like I should weird know. about threads is that X is so demonstrably horrible. <laughs> right. But I wonder if people are sort of like, eh, do we need, do it's we, all bad. Do we need any of this? Yeah. But we are there. We're on we were threads. there, yeah. We were there. We are there, I think so. We were mad at Twitter before you guys. That, that's right. X. X. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and perhaps be featured on the podcast, you can call us at 847-306-9532 or email us a voice memo. Yeah, And always, we'd love it if you could subscribe and leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. Those ratings really help spread the word about our show. Can We Still Be Friends is written and produced by Ryan Ebling and Nate Goss and edited by Nate Goss. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye.